Hello everyone, I'm Sophie and I'll be doing our first Bible reading, which is from Deuteronomy 4. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord the God of your ancestors is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes that the Lord, what the Lord did at Baal Hor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Hor, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land and that you are entering and to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us, whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees law, and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. And, that, and then when he said to me, assemble the people before me, hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with the black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sounds of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is the word of our God. Thank you again, everybody, for the welcome. Thank you, John, for inviting me. And I am thankful to be able to walk through this uh, wonderful book with you. Uh, I told you that my wife is very lovely, and she always writes a note in my suitcase to tell me that she loves me. And she also fills my suitcase with goodies. And um, I try to give them away to other people. So whoever looks the most attentive for this talk, <laughs> I'll give this... Um, like an old girl chocolate too. And I'm going to add a prayer which I often pray before we turn to God's word. Um, so although we have prayed, I'm going to add a short prayer. Let's bow our heads together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this scripture that you have given to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to see, understand, rejoice and live. And we pray that what we know not you would teach us. And what we have not, you would give to us. And what we are not, you would make us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now the outline, my friends, is on page four in your booklet. And what we're planning to do is uh, get a handle on the book of Deuteronomy. It's not possible to cover 34 chapters thoroughly. And so we're going to lose a little bit of depth because we're going to try and do a good bit of breadth in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, as you probably know, is the fifth book of the Old Testament. Uh, some people have called it the backbone of the Bible. Some people have said that it's probably the most important book 
to get a handle on in the Old Testament. And uh, so we're going to um, hear its message. We're going to see that it points us to Jesus, because you remember Jesus said all scripture points to him. And if you don't know, Deuteronomy is Moses preaching to God's people on the edge of the promised land. Just as they're about to enter the promised land, he preaches to them. And so I want to say some introductory things. You can see the little word introduction on your outline. First of all, I want you to know that the book of Deuteronomy is a grace-driven book. It's not a book telling you that if you're good, you will be saved. It's a book telling God's people you're saved, and now I want you to live well. Okay? Very important. The message is not be good and you will live. The message is you belong, and I want you to live joyfully and helpfully and faithfully. Just as we would say to our children, you belong, we want you to live joyfully. It says in chapter 1, verse 31, the Lord has carried you as a father carries a son. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, God has blessed and watched over you. It says in chapter 3, the Lord has given you this land that you're about to enter. He's given it to you. And it says in chapter 4, he loved you and he chose you. So God sees his people as in, not out. Second, getting a handle on the book of Deuteronomy is not difficult. Even though it is 34 chapters, it's based very much like an Old Testament treaty contract, arrangement. So imagine that I had conquered you. Imagine that I was a king from Sydney and I had just conquered you. And I gathered you like this and I said something to you like this. Well, this is what's happened. We've had a battle and I won. The relationship is going to be king, me, servants, you. And the details of how you're to live are like this. On and on and on and on and on. I'll tell you what they look like. So you have to make a decision. Put your hand up if you would like to survive and not be killed. <laughs> this is not a real question. <laughs> this is what the king says. And if you don't put your hand up, I presume you want to be killed. <laughs> so that, that's basically how a treaty would go. Now Moses is doing this with God's people. He's saying to them, this is the journey so far. God has brought you to here, to the edge of the promised land, life on the edge. This is the relationship. He's your God. This is what it's going to look like in practice. And you need to make a decision. And that's our four talks. Journey so far, that's tonight. Contract, covenant, that's tomorrow morning. Details. That's tomorrow afternoon. Make a decision. That's tomorrow morning. When I gave these talks uh, at a conference in the UK called Keswick, um, which was a great privilege in the Lake District, and I had to go down every afternoon and give a talk to the children's workers and the youth workers because they were going to give that lesson the next morning. And one of them said to me, how are we possibly going to teach the book of Deuteronomy to children? So we worked out that we would summarize the book of Deuteronomy like this. 
M-I-C-E, mice. Moses preached it. Israel failed it. Christ obeyed it. Every believer is safe. Moses preached Deuteronomy. Israel failed to keep Deuteronomy. Christ obeyed Deuteronomy. Every believer in Christ is safe. Now, I think you can all pretty well follow that. There are some great lines in the book of Deuteronomy. For example, don't be afraid, the Lord will fight for you. Or, it was because the Lord loved you that he chose you. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Teach your children as you sit, as you walk, as you lie down. When you return to him, he will have compassion on you. Choose life so you may live. These words are not idle words. They are your life. And the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So friends, we've come to the book of Deuteronomy. We've said goodbye to Adam and Eve. We've said goodbye to Noah. We've said goodbye to Abraham. We've said goodbye to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And we've said goodbye to Egypt and the rescue and crossing the Red Sea. And we've said goodbye to Mount Sinai and the gathering of the Ten Commandments. And we've said goodbye to the wilderness. And we're now on the edge of the Promised Land. Could you just give a little wave of your hand if you're still with me? And another little wave if you can understand everything I'm saying. Good, because I want you to come with me on this trip. I don't want you to get to the end and say, we don't know what he was talking about. So we're going now to chapter one, which I've called The Road So Far. It's been difficult to arrange this rain, but I want you to know that it's to remind you that great showers of blessing will be poured upon us as we study this book. So chapter one, I've called The Road So Far. Now, if you do open your Bible to chapter one, verse one, you'll see that Moses recaps the journey so far. And I want to remind you that he's talking to some grown-ups who were present at Mount Sinai, but they were children at Mount Sinai. It's now 40 years later. They are adults. They have children. But all the adults who were at Mount Sinai have died. They died in the wilderness. So can I say that again? 40 years ago at Mount Sinai, there were adults and children. The adults have died. The children are now adults. The adults who were children now have children. And that's who he's speaking to. And he says to them in verses 1 to 3, or we're told in verses 1 to 3, that it's actually 11 days' journey from Sinai to the Promised Land, but it's taken 40 years. Why has it taken 40 years to go 11 days? Anybody like to say? It's an 11-day journey. It's taken 40 years. Why has it taken 40 years? Because they were disobedient and God made them wander through the wilderness for 40 years. So he says in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, we left Sinai. Yes, yes, they left Sinai. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 18, we chose leaders for the administration of the journey. Yes, they did. Verses 19 to 25, we sent in 12 spies. Do you remember that, sending 12 spies into the Promised Land? And do you remember they came back and 10 of them said, we're never going to make it? 
and two of them said we will make it and they listened to the ten and then he says in chapter 1 verses 26 to 33 you complained and grumbled and wouldn't believe and so chapter 1 verses 34 to 40 I decided nobody would enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb just two now this did not mean my friends that everybody who had grumbled went to hell it simply means they didn't go into the promised land and Moses didn't go into the promised land but we know that Moses is alive and well how do we know Moses is alive and well because he turns up later in the Gospels on the Mount of Transfiguration so don't fall into the trap of thinking those Old Testament believers they just made one simple mistake and they fell into the pit of hell no 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 they just didn't go into the promised land they didn't get the dirt of the land God is gracious now Moses of course blames the people for not going into the promised land but of course part of the reason that Moses didn't go into the promised land was his, it was his fault do you remember what Moses did hitting the rock I've always been a little bit confused about the hitting the rock but this is what David Gooding says see if you can follow this God told Moses and Aaron to take the rod and there were two rods be careful you get the rod the right rod it was not the rod of God's judgment that Moses lifted up over the Nile and turned the Nile to blood now this was the rod that was set up before the Lord and blossomed and brought forth almonds and confirmed the priesthood what an exhibition of the mercies of God it was going to be when Moses held the rod the fruitful rod to show that God was a God of mercy but there was Moses and they had the rod and they hit the rock because in, in fact they were not believing God but doubting in front of the people and so this was why the disobedience was so serious because they were misrepresenting God to the people well the people at the end of chapter 1 still thought well we can win the victory even though we're in trouble and they went off to fight and they, they lost hopelessly looking back which is the point of the first chapter 1 is sometimes a bad thing to do do you remember Paul said in Philippians forgetting what lies behind because if you look back and you're just grumbling about the past or you're just dwelling on sins of the past it won't do you any good but if you look back to see how God has led you and kept you and blessed you it is a good thing to look back so there is a good looking back and there is a bad looking back and Moses is helping them to look back well and to see that they were foolish but he was merciful chapter 2 is called pick your fights and by the way as an aside it's very important that you don't get into church fights if you possibly can because this is not the time for the church to start fighting one another when the world is so critical of the church and the church is so frail so it's not the time for the church to be shooting guns at one another in the church this is the time for us to be showing the love of Christ 
when the world is especially critical. But chapter 2 is about who to fight as God's people travel to the promised land. And the answer in chapter 2 verse 4 is they were not to fight their relatives, people called the Edomites who were descended from Esau, descended from Abraham. And they were not to fight, chapter 2 verse 9, the Moabites and the Ammonites who were descended from Lot, descended from Abraham. In other words, they were not to fight their relatives as they travelled to the promised land. But there were people that they should fight. One of these people was a king called Sihon, chapter 2, verse 24. And one of them was a king called Og, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there's not enough children being born today called Sihon and Og. And if you do find yourself pregnant, and if you are struggling to know what to call your new son, you should think about Sihon or Og. They're just... They're underused names in the Bible, I think, in my opinion. Anyway, these were two kings who the people of God were going to meet as they travelled toward the Promised Land, and God said, you, you must fight them. So we're told in chapter 2 that they first of all fought King Sihon. And by the way, Sihon and Og were like the doorposts into the Promised Land. So they, in chapter 2, verse 26, they went up to Sihon. First of all, they offered him an offer of peace. But in chapter 2, verse 30, he refused. And you'll notice if you read the text carefully that he refused to take up God's offer of peace and God made him hard and obstinate at the same time. Human responsibility, sovereignty of God. So the people of Israel fought Sihon and defeated him. Why did they fight Sihon and defeat him? For two reasons. One, it was time for Sion to die. Second, it would be a great encouragement to God's people who were moving into the promised land that God was with them and would help them in the battle of the promised land. Now, chapter 2 is quite distressing reading, as, in, as are various parts of Deuteronomy, because it describes this battle. And the battle, of course, was very dreadful. But I want to remind you, and I'll say this again and again over the weekend, that the invasion of the Promised Land was something which God had waited 400 years to do, having communicated to the people that he was God and they had not responded. And it was his land, and he promised to give his people a land. And this was a unique war, never to be repeated. So don't get too distressed about the the giving of the promised land or the taking of the promised land. And the whole thing of the taking of the promised land is a preview of a much greater promised land which is ahead for Christ's people. So I, as I get older, am very encouraged that the Old Testament has already given us a preview of God providing a promised land for his people just as God will provide a promised heaven for his people. We've seen it in miniature in the Old Testament. We'll see it in major Monday. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3 I've called Looking Ahead, and this is where they move to the other doorkeeper, number 2, called Og. Did I mention that Og would make a good name for a son? Yes, let's move on. They don't make an offer of peace to Og because Og comes marching towards them, but Og is defeated. And again, it's hard reading the way this 
king and his people are defeated, but justice is at work. God is a God of justice. And when you and I read parts of the Bible and we find ourselves not liking that part of the Bible, you must keep yourself humble because there are things that are in that scripture which are bigger and better than we think they are. So just before we take a high position of criticism and say, well, I think I'll cut that portion out, I don't like it, you'll only do great damage to your soul. The better thing is to sit under the whole scripture and try and work out what's really happening. Just as if somebody comes up to you and says, I can't believe in your God because of all the suffering in the world. And what do we say at that point? Well, this is what I say. I hold out my hand like this and I say, you know, there's just a whole lot of things that I know nothing about. There's a whole lot of things I can't explain. There's a whole lot of things that distress me. There's a whole lot of suffering I can't explain. But that does not cancel what I do know, what I have been told in Scripture, what I do know of God and I do know of Christ. And so I'm not going to give up what I do know just because there are things I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's the principle we'll come to in chapter 29, verse 29. Secret things belong to the Lord. Things revealed are for us and our children. So Israel has now captured the land just east of the promised land. So just behind me is a wall. Just imagine Israel is moving to your left, west, into the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they have two fights with Sihon and Og, and they win them both. And so now they've taken great heart because they realize God is with them miraculously. And they therefore can take heart of moving into the promised land. But what are they going to do with this land that they've just conquered, which is on the east side of the promised land? The answer is they're going to take it. And Moses is going to give it to three of the tribes. But the three tribes have to go into the promised land first and win the promised land, and then they can come back and settle on the east side of the river. I hope you can follow that. Well, Moses then encourages in chapter 3 Joshua to take over and... Um, he asks God if he might enter the promised land, and God says he's not to enter the promised land. So what are the things we learn from Deuteronomy 1, 2, 3, chapters 1, 2, 3? The things we learn are that God is putting things in place to encourage his people to keep trusting him and to keep obeying him. Now, my friends, what has God put in place for you so that you might trust him and obey him? And the answer is he's put a whole lot of wonderful history lessons in place. The coming of Jesus, the dying of Jesus, the rising of Jesus. And he's provided you with a whole lot of promises so that you might trust him and obey him. And if you say, I don't have enough information to trust him, Jesus says, there's enough in the words and the works to trust him. And there is. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now we come to chapter 4 for the last few minutes, which is just going to take me a little bit longer to, to cover. Because chapter 4 is a very important chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. And I think I've put on your sheet, your outline, four things to know about chapter 4. First, God's people in the land have a mission. They've got a mission. They've got to listen very carefully to what God says. 
They've got to choose his voice over all the other voices. They're not to add chapter 4 verse 2. Do you remember hearing that? They're not to subtract. Does anybody know where that comes up again in the Bible? Don't add to the Bible. Don't subtract to the Bible. Comes at the end, very end, doesn't it? Revelation 22. Of course, if you add to the Bible, you're insulting God. You're saying, well, you haven't given us enough. We're going to add something. And if you subtract from the Bible, you're doubting God. You're saying, we don't think everything you've said is, is accurate. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were great adders. The Sadducees were great subtractors. And then in chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, uh, there's a quick reference to a time of disobedience where the Israelites fell into immorality because they listened to the wrong people. But in chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, we come to a very great mission. And the mission of God's people in the Promised Land was that they were to live in the midst of all the nations around them, and they were to demonstrate to the nations around them that God was very wise and wonderful. And it was important to God that the people of Israel lived wisely in the world with the nations watching them so that the nations would know that God was very great and very gracious. So these are very important words in the introduction to Deuteronomy and I want you to remember this, dear friends, because some people have said the book of Deuteronomy is just all about rules, but it's not. And some people have said it's all about in-house Israel stuff, but it's not. God wanted his people in the promised land, surrounded by the nations of the world, to live in such a way that people would see that God was great and gracious. They had a mission. The mission was bigger than their own happiness. The mission was bigger than their own success. It had to do with God's glory and the nations around. Now, I want to ask you quickly, how do you think St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church, Surrey Hills, Victoria, have I got that right? Is going to affect the nations or the people of Victoria, Melbourne around you? And I suspect, friends, it's not going to be because the people of Victoria are going to drive past your building and hear you singing and say, I must become a Christian. I just don't think that's going to happen. Rarely. I don't even think you should be waiting for the people around the suburbs of Surrey Hills to start pouring into your church. I mean, it'll be great if they do. Praise God if they do. But you mustn't imagine that the way that you're going to influence those people around you is by singing and sitting in church. That's where you gather to feed and to get clear. But it's your leaving and living which is going to help people to see something of Christ. It's because you put kindness into practice. It's because you treat people honourably. It's because you don't swear like everybody else. It's because you don't blaspheme like everybody else. It's because you set a certain standard of honesty. Because you're wanting to be a signpost to Christ. It's the scattered people of God who will impact Surrey Hills and beyond. It's not so much the gathering.
It would be wonderful if everybody in Surrey Hills pulls into your church. May God make it happen. But I'm just telling you that when we're talking about your mission, it's not so much that Surrey Hills is going to watch your services. It's that you're going to go and live for Christ. And that's what we're, what's, what we're reading about here. Then in chapter 4, verse 9, there's a section uh, about children, regarding children, and we'll see more of that in chapter 6. You remember Moses is speaking to generation 2, that is, the adults who were children at Mount Sinai, and they, ha they now have children who weren't at Mount Sinai. And so Moses is saying to these adults, you saw what happened at Mount Sinai, the thunder and the lightning, you heard the voice of God, but your children didn't, so tell them. Don't leave it all to the Sunday school teachers. Tell your children about Christ when you walk, when you drive, when you go on holidays. And then he talks about idols in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, when you were at Mount Sinai, you may remember that you heard words because God spoke. You heard a sound, you heard a voice, but you didn't see God. Now, I wonder if anybody in the room can tell me why God's people at Mount Sinai, as God spoke and gave his message to listen to him, why didn't they get to see God? Does anybody know? I'll give you one reason. We're told that we cannot see him and live. He's too splendid, too glorious. We're told in the Bible that he's spirit, and therefore we can't see him. We're also told in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that we, we heard the voice, but we didn't see any form. Because the danger of seeing some kind of shape would then be to take that and turn it into a statue or an idol and then God would kind of be domesticated and it would become an idol. And so God made sure at Mount Sinai that they heard his voice so they knew what he was on about but they didn't get to see a picture because God was concerned about idolatry and idolatry is really dangerous. Idolatry is where you create a form of God either to suit yourself so he's a pussycat and do whatever you want him to or he becomes a monster much worse than he really is and both those extremes are dangerous now what we really need is the word of God that will help us to know what God is like so without the word of God we easily produce don't we a push over God or we produce a monster God. Do we need to see God? We don't need to see God. Did some people see God? Yes, they did. Jesus came. People saw God in the flesh. We should be very thankful that people did see God. But we don't need to see God. Because we can read the eyewitnesses who did see God. And that's why Jesus said to Thomas on one occasion, you're believing because you saw, well that's fine, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. 
because they will either read what you're going to write or they'll hear what has been said and they will believe. And that's all we need. We only need to read the word of the, eyewit of the eyewitnesses. We're told in chapter 4 again that God is jealous. If we make an idol, it distresses him, it angers him. And so you need to be very careful that we don't invent a God who is a pussycat or a, or a, or a dragon. But then we're told at the end of chapter 4 that when God's people return to him, having drifted away, having fallen into error, having fallen into evil, they will find mercy. I don't know if you've heard of the great uh, Charles Spurgeon. Have any of you heard of Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes? Uh, Charles Spurgeon's last student in his Bible college was a man called Frank Borum. Terrible name for a preacher, Borum. And Borum eventually ministered in Hobart. He came all the way from the UK and ministered in Hobart. And Borum was standing on the dock of Hobart, the little harbour there, on one occasion, and he was talking to a sailor. And he said to the sailor, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And the sailor said to Frank Borum, you see all the boats out there? If you took all my sins, there wouldn't be enough room on all those boats for my sins. And Frank Borum said, do you see that water out there? That's like the mercy of Christ. There's enough mercy to sink all your sins. It's a great response, isn't it? And Moses is making sure that God's people know, despite the warnings, which are serious, and he doesn't want them to fall into traps, that God is so merciful that anybody who returns to him will find mercy, which is what we read in chapter 4, 29 and 31. So we read it chapter, at the end of chapter 4, nobody is so blessed as God's people. Nobody is so blessed as God's people. Has any God been so gracious to speak, provide and protect? In fact, he provides mercy. And we know that mercy is shown most clearly at the cross of Christ. I think that's probably enough for the first night. Chapters 1 to 4. A little bit of a look back, who to fight and not to fight. What was chapter 3 about? I've forgotten. What does it say on your sheet? Looking ahead. And then chapter 4, various things to do with the people of God. Okay, I'll hand back to Chris. And tomorrow, we're going to look at what it means to be in a covenant, con contract, marriage with God.